Well, good morning. Good morning. Uh, let's open up with a word of prayer, if we could, please. Our Father, we do come to you giving great thanks for the blessing of being able to come together as the body of Christ. We thank you for your scriptures and ask that you would illumine our minds this morning, that we might understand what Ezekiel wrote so long ago. Father, help it to influence the way that we live our lives and our perspective of all the things that are going on in this creation. Father, ultimately, all these prophecies will be fulfilled. And so we thank you for that. We thank you for the privilege to come together. Thank you for the freedom we have to discuss the Word of God. May our conversation be pleasing to you. For we pray in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. This is uh, week number 17 in our study of eschatology, and we're over in Ezekiel. We'll be in chapter 35 this morning. And last time we saw, as we finished chapter 34, which I believe is the beginning of the millennial reign of Jesus Christ, Uh, Those years come after the seven years of tribulation. Um, Jesus Christ returns and slaughters all the armies of the nations uh, at the Battle of Megiddo. Then the Antichrist and the false prophet are thrown into the lake of fire. Uh, Satan is bound for a thousand years in the abyss. And Jesus Christ takes the throne of David, it's seated in Jerusalem, and begins his thousand-year reign. Now, of course, Ezekiel doesn't detail all of that for us. We have to go to the Revelation to be able to put that together along with what we see in Ezekiel. But in Ezekiel, he does speak of Jesus Christ coming again and being seated on his throne And that throne is in the hills of Israel in Jerusalem. And so those details Ezekiel does give us. And as we've talked all about, as we've looked into eschatology, the New Testament expands what was given in the Old Testament. Ezekiel had no idea uh, about the church age or that... um, that there would be thousands of years before Jesus Christ would come again. Um, He had no idea that um, Israel would be hardened for thousands of years. But he does have it right, as God revealed it to him, that Christ would come again and he would reign, and he would reign um, in Jerusalem. And so... What we see as you look at the, old, the full expanse of Scripture is that some things were given to the Old Testament prophets and then to the New Testament prophets, they filled in some of the gaps that the Old Testament could not see. You don't reinterpret the Old Testament based upon what the New Testament says. You see the New Testament as an expansion of what was given in the Old Testament. Now, in... Chapter 34, as the Millennial Kingdom is established, we saw several very clear, distinct things, and that is that God removes the leaders of Israel. 
God removes the fat sheep of Israel because they are not um, the people of God. They are not the sheep who remain under Jesus Christ's rule. They're cast out of the kingdom. God says, I am against you and I will remove you and I'll judge between one sheep and another. Meaning there are some people of Israel who are the true sheep of God and some who are not. And then we saw um, a king named David and we trace that and that's clearly Jesus Christ of the line of David who comes and is shepherd of all those people who remain. And he'll be king over the land, he'll be their God, um, he'll be what's called the prince. Um, several different terminology used to describe this leader over Israel. So Jesus Christ coming and being established on his throne in Jerusalem is clearly seen in Ezekiel. We walk through the details of that in chapter 34. Yeah. Yeah. Very important, right? Very different kind of way of... of well, right? yeah, what John is saying is we now know his name. Yeah. And we, we know who he is and what's yet to take place. Yeah. And, and Andy was reading chapter 1, verse 1 of the book of Revelation. Which God gave him to show his servants. Right. Right. I mean, that's why he gives the book, I believe. That's right. And it's because many things have unfolded or been unveiled that are somewhere between where we are right now and when that time comes. Yeah, and, and I mean, the book of Revelation is so that when it happens, the believers will know that it's happening. And there are many people um, during the tribulation who place faith in Jesus Christ. Most of them are killed because of it. Um, because of the Antichrist and the false prophet and all the things that they impose on the, um, on the system of this world. Uh, most of the believers die, but I mean, scores of unbelievers die also. I mean, over half of the population of the earth, which today would be uh, four billion people, die during the seven years of tribulation. Um, I mean, you can see it at the very beginning, even before the Antichrist um, raises up and you see him for who he really is, um, you know, a third of the world is killed just immediately, right up front, um, because that's the cataclysmic things, the earthquakes, the, um, the tsunamis that result from those, I mean, are just killing scores of people. And that's how the Antichrist gets his power. I mean, for the church, I mean, the Lord, the implications here for the church, which is us now, right? is the, the emphasis that, that the Lord puts on this sermon. Right. We have to know the scriptures. We have to see these things coming and unfolding as they unfold so that we are discerning of the times we're living in. And it's fascinating to me that this eschatology, in, in many ways, 
Are, and you can't understand it, right? I mean, that's, the, that's the, the church's line about eschatology is why study it because you can't understand what it really is teaching. We, we, I mean, is, is there any scripture that's given so that you can't understand it? I mean, that would be my question, right? Is there any place in scripture that you shouldn't be studying because you can't understand it? I mean, that's absurdity, right? The, the scriptures clearly proclaim that we've been given the Holy Spirit so that we might discern what the scriptures teach. Yeah, I mean, uh, <laughs> this plan has been so well des designed and revealed that you have to shut your eyes in order to not see it in scripture. That's why I like eschatology. Because from that I can see God's plan. No, no. I mean, you have to study, right? Anything worth, worth understanding is worth studying. But um, eschatology, to me, ties the plan of God together from before the creation till after the creation. And if you don't study it, then how do you really know what the plan of God is? It's a story. Yeah, it is. And if you, if you don't understand that full story, you'll never understand the doctrines of grace because they all go hand in hand. Um, so anyway, we'll move on. Chapter 35, now chapter 35 for me brings up some questions. Um, the main one being, why is this here? Um, so we'll answer those at the end after we go through what chapter 35 speaks to and see what's being prophesied here Again, this is prophecy every bit as much as the rest of the book of Ezekiel was prophecy. Um, and so you have to figure out what is going on in, church, in ver chapter 35, which is the prophecy against Mount Seir. Okay, so um, to understand what Mount Seir is, when, it, when the scriptures speak like of the mountain of Israel, or of Mount Seir, it's not just talking about the physical mountain. It's talking about the region around the mountain and the land around the mountain and the nation around the mountain. It's just the, that's the way to speak of the area is to speak of the highest peak that would be there, which in this case is Mount Seir. Now, there's several places in Scripture where it talks about this mountain and what it is. So look back in Genesis chapter 32. So way back at the beginning of the story is this mountain and it's prominent. Genesis 32 and just verse 3. Then Jacob sent messengers before him to his brother Esau in the land of Seir, the country of Edom. So you can see clearly that the mountain is associated with a country. And in this case, the country is Edom. Okay, now look over a couple of chapters beyond that in chapter 36. And we could go, I could go a lot more than just to these two places, but this is sufficient I believe and you see you remember that Jacob left his homeland 
after he had sold his birthright and he realized he had been tricked and all of that, he leaves. And so, so Esau lived in the hill country, verse 8 of chapter 36 of Genesis. So Esau lived in the hill country of Seir. Esau is Edom. So anytime you see Edom or the Edomites um, or the nation called Mount Seir, any of that speaks of the descendants of Esau. And we know who they are. They're detailed for us in, in Genesis. It gives us all his sons and who they were and who their sons were. That's all detailed for us. But Edom is Esau. Edom is the descendants of Esau. And the hatred that the Edomites had for the Israelites is well chronicled in the scriptures. It's in many places described. And what God will do in chapter 35 is recount what it is that Edom did against Israel. Okay, because he has a special place for Edom. And so let's just kind of walk through this in Ezekiel 35, knowing that the Edomites are the descendants of Esau. So you have Jacob and Esau, right, the twins. Rebekah, their mother, told that the older will serve the younger, meaning the, the younger, Jacob, renamed Israel, who had the 12 sons, that they would be greater and mightier than the Edomites. And so that animosity that even existed in Rebekah's womb as the babies struggled has existed through all of the known history up until the time of Ezekiel. Which helps us understand why no United Nations or political effort is going to bring unity and diversity to these two factions. Yeah. Um, okay, we'll get there. <laughs> all right, so I want you just to see what God says is going to happen in the nation of Edom. So beginning, just read the first four verses here. Moreover, the word of the Lord came to me saying, Son of man, set your face against Mount Seir and prophesy against it and say to it, Thus says the Lord God, Behold, I am against you, Mount Seir, and I will stretch out my hand against you and make you a desolation and a waste. I will lay waste, I will lay waste your cities and you will become a desolation, then you will know that I am the Lord. And then drop down to verse 7, where he says, I will make Mount Seir a waste and a desolation, and I will cut off from it the one who passes through and returns, and will fill its mountains with the slain. On your hills and in your valleys and in your ravines, those slain by the sword will fall. I will make you an everlasting desolation, and your cities will not be inhabited. Then you will know that I am the Lord. So, pretty bleak prophecy against Edom, right? I mean, all their people are going to be killed. No one will be allowed to pass through the nation of Edom. That there will be dead bodies in the mountains and in the ravines, everywhere, that people will be killed. There'll be cities 
that nobody inhabits because they've all been killed. So this is the desolation of Edom, Mount Seir. Okay, so the question in my mind is why? Why does God do this? And chapter 35 gives us explicit reasons why God does this. So look in verse 5. Here's the because, right? This is the reason why God desolates Edom. Because you have had everlasting enmity and have delivered the sons of Israel to the power of the sword at the time of their calamity, at the end of the punishment of the end. Therefore, as I live, declares the Lord God, I'll give you over to bloodshed, and bloodshed will pursue you, since you have not hated bloodshed, therefore bloodshed will pursue you. Okay, so God says the reason that I'm going to do this to Mount Seir, to Edom, is because they delivered the sons of Israel over to calamity. And you notice he says that they did this at the time of the punishment of the end. Okay, sounds like an eschatological term, right? The time of the punishment of the end, right? So you run to all these things that you know are in Scripture about the punishment of the end, the tribulation and all that, right? Not what he's talking about. Not at all what he's talking about because the, this terminology has already been used by Ezekiel twice in the book of Ezekiel. And he's not talking about the end times. That's not what's being spoken of here. Look with me back over in... Um, Ezekiel chapter 7. And right at the very beginning of it, I believe. Yeah, just start in verse 1. Moreover, the word of the Lord came to me, saying, And you, son of man, thus says the Lord God to the land of Israel, an end. The end is coming on the four corners of the land. So he's talking about a coming end. And we've looked at Ezekiel, what, what is going to happen at this end? What is he talking about? All through the first 20 or really 33 chapters of Ezekiel, what is the prophecy about? The destruction of Jerusalem by the Babylonians. And so this end that he's speaking of right here is talking about Nebuchadnezzar and the destruction of Jerusalem. Now, it's more explicit if you look over in chapter 21. And you can see this is the terminology that God gave to Ezekiel to use about the coming destruction of Jerusalem. Look in... Chapter 21, verse 20. And this is uh, instruction to Ezekiel. You shall mark the way for the sword to come to Rabbah of the sons of Ammon and to Judah and to fortify Jerusalem. 
For the king of Babylon stands at the parting of the way, at the head of the two ways, to use divination. He shakes the arrows. He consults the household idols. He looks at the liver. So this pictures a road to the sons of Ammon and a road to Jerusalem. And Nebuchadnezzar standing at the fork in the road trying to consult his idols and divinations and all these heathen things to determine who he should go against first. Now, we know from Ezekiel he goes against Jerusalem first and then later against the sons of Ammon and a whole bunch of other people. But he goes against Jerusalem. So we know that this is talking about Nebuchadnezzar. Now, Look on down in verse 24 and 25. Therefore, thus says the Lord God, because you have made your iniquity to be remembered in that your transgressions are uncovered so that all your deeds, your sins appear, because you have come to remembrance, you will be seized with the hand and you, O slain wicked one, the prince of Israel, whose day has come in the time of the punishment of the end. So this punish, time of the punishment of the end doesn't speak of eschatology and the end of the age or the end of our age or anything like that. It's talking about the punishment of Israel inflicted by Nebuchadnezzar when he destroyed Jerusalem and killed all the people. All right, now look on down a couple of verses later in the, the same chapter, down in verse 29. While they, see, um, while they see for you false visions, while they divine lies of you, to place you on the necks of the wicked who are slain, whose day is come in the time of the punishment of the end. So you see Ezekiel using this phrase, the time of the punishment of the end, multiple times through the book of, it, of Ezekiel, not to speak of the end times, but to speak of the time in the 6th century B.C. when Nebuchadnezzar came against the Israelites. But that was the time of the end of the kingdom. It was. The Davidic line stopped there. Well, the Davidic line never stopped, right? <laughs> the, Right, sitting physically on the throne, yes, but the Davidic line goes on for another 600 years to the time of Jesus Christ. And Matthew details that for us all through those, even the years of silence, Matthew um, details what the genealogy is that leads down to Jesus Christ. Now, so you go back to chapter 34, 35, and when you see him saying this in, in verse 5 when he says that you delivered the sons of Israel to the power of the sword at the time of their calamity at the end of the punishment of the end at the time of the punishment of the end so that speaks of when Nebuchadnezzar came against Israel against Judah really and some of the people tried to flee and if you were fleeing from Jerusalem Edom would be one of the ways to get away 
and yet the Edomites refused the Israelites' entrance, probably even fought against them, which meant that Nebuchadnezzar could catch them and kill them all in the land of Israel. And so that's what he's speaking of here. Why am I going to cause this desolation of Mount Seir and of the Edomites? Because at the time when Nebuchadnezzar came against Jerusalem and the people tried to flee, you did not allow them to, and thus they were all destroyed. That's this first reason that he gives. Wow. So this, again, while... Ezekiel is full of eschatology of the time of the ultimate end. That's not what's being spoken of here. So you have to be careful as you go through these passages that you look at other references, even from Ezekiel's own pen, to make sure that, okay, he's not talking about the second coming of Jesus Christ here. He's just talking about when Nebuchadnezzar destroyed Jerusalem. All right. That's the first reason given by God of why he's going to make these people um, desolate. Now, there's other reasons. Look in verse 10. Because, again, that word, this is why I'm going to do this, because you have said these two nations and these two lands will be mine and we will possess them, although the Lord was there. Okay, two nations that Edom wanted to possess. Who would that speak of? Yeah, Judah and Israel, both descended from Jacob, that the Edomites wanted to take both of their lands. Okay, so Israel to the north of Jerusalem along the, um, the Dead Sea and that area, and Judah to the south, down encompassing Jerusalem and some of the land south of Jerusalem. And so those two nations, the Edomites, wanted to take their land, even planned to take their land. Ezekiel says that they, um, they came against them in battle array even, and God stopped them, did not allow them. One of the ways God stopped them was by using Nebuchadnezzar, that they could not take the land because Nebuchadnezzar comes against them. So ultimately, um, that's another one of the reasons because they wanted to take the land that was promised to the patriarchs for themselves. And God says, no, you're not going to do that. And he has stopped them. All right, there are more reasons. Verse 11, Therefore, I w- as I live, declares the Lord God, I will deal with you according to your anger and according to your envy, which you showed because of your hatred against them, and I will make myself known among them when I judge you. So they had hatred, they had envy, they had anger, all these things that the people of Edom were characterized by in regards to Israel. And so God says, because of these things, because of you turning them over to Nebuchadnezzar, because you have enmity and anger and and envy against them, I'm going to destroy you and make you desolate. Or he gives more reasons. Verse 12, then you will know that I am the Lord, 
I, the Lord, have heard all your revilings which you have spoken against the mountains of Israel, saying, They are laid desolate. They are given to us for food. Now, this was probably after Nebuchadnezzar had gone in and wiped out all of Israel that the Edomites, who had not yet been persecuted by Nebuchadnezzar, could look over and see all the destruction. And so they said, this land is good for us to feed off of. And again, that's part of the, the um, planning to take the two lands. And they also, you notice here, it says they reviled them, meaning they were happy at the destruction of the Israelites by Nebuchadnezzar. They delighted in it. And, and they hurled insults against Israel because of it. All right, God gives more reasons down in verse 15. And here's exactly what I was just talking about. As you rejoiced over the inheritance of the house of Israel, because it was desolate, so I will do to you, you will be a desolation, O Mount Seir, and all Edom, all of it, then they will know that I am the Lord. Now, the, the major reason that you see here three times of why God's going to do this is so that they will know that I am the Lord. That's the primary reason that God is doing this. He's revealing himself to, the, to not only them, but to the whole world. And he does part of, in part, by decimating Mount Seir. Now, you notice there he says that they were happy and rejoiced because Jerusalem, the inheritance, the land, was laid desolate. So when that happened, Edom was rejoicing. Okay? That's something to keep in mind as we come to some questions that I have about this. Now, if, if you went on through the book of Ezekiel, and we will, I mean, in chapter 34, we saw the millennial reign. In chapter 36, we'll see the blessings of the hills of Israel. In 37, we'll see the reunion and unification of the two nations coming back together as one. We'll see the salvation, I mean, in clear detail of the Jews given in chapter 36. In, um, in 37, we see the reunion. You see the establishment of the Davidic kingdom, using those terminology. Um, you see um, in 40, 40, chapter 40 through 42, you see the details of the temple that's going to be built in the millennial reign. I mean, excruciating detail for three chapters with a measuring rod telling you exactly how thick the walls are, how high they are, how deep they are, everything given in explicit detail. So we'll walk through some of that. Um, in 44, you see the glory of the Lord filling that temple. That'll be physically where God lives during the millennial reign, will be in that temple. Um, in 45 through 48, that's the end of the book, you actually see again the division of the land among the 12 tribes. You see the land given to the Levites. You see the sacrificial system reestablished. 
you see the instruction to the Levites of how to perform those sacrifices. All of this is details of the millennial kingdom. And it started in chapter 44. So the question, in 34. So the question is, why in chapter 35 do we have this prophecy against Mount Seir? What is he talking about? When is it? When does it take place? Who does it? Is it God himself doing it? Or is he using someone else to do it? Those are all questions that I have because, again, I believe that, 44, that 34 through 48 of Ezekiel are the millennial kingdom. So I have to deal with this Mount Seir here in the middle of the millennial kingdom. Okay? Because we know from Isaiah that the world, the nature is somewhat changed. That, the, you know, the lion and the lamb lay down together. That the cobra no longer bites a man. There, there are changes in the ecology of the world during the millennial reign. But here, what do we do with chapter 35? Because you've got to do something with it. And so, you know, there, there are several things I think that you ought to put in your mind as you think about this. You remember there was something special said about Edom when Ezekiel was prophesying by, about all the nations that Nebuchadnezzar would come against. And there were many of those details. You remember um, the sons of Ammon, you remember Tyre and Sidon, you remember Egypt, Assyria, all these nations that were prophesied against by Ezekiel that Nebuchadnezzar would ultimately destroy. But in the midst of all of that, he said something specific back in chapter 25 about Edom. And this was unique. This is only about Edom in all of the prophecy given in Ezekiel about what Nebuchadnezzar would do. Chapter 25, verses 12 through 14. This is in 25, you'll see the sons of Ammon. You'll see Moab. You see Philistia. In chapter 26, you see Tyre and Sidon judged. I mean, um, this is just kind of chronicling what Nebuchadnezzar is going to do. But in 25, verse 12, he speaks about Edom. And he says, Thus says the Lord God, because Edom has acted against the house of Judah by taking vengeance and has incurred grievous guilt and avenged themselves upon them, therefore, thus says the Lord God, I will also stretch out my hand against Edom and cut off man and beast from it, and I'll lay it waste from Teman even to Dedan, that they will fall by the sword. I will lay my vengeance on Edom by the hand of my people Israel. Therefore they will act in Edom according to my anger and according to my wrath. Thus they will know my vengeance, declares the Lord God. Okay, so this is Edom. And it's not going to be taken by Nebuchadnezzar. It's going to be taken by the hands of the Israelites. So something very different than what he said about all the other nations because Nebuchadnezzar was going to destroy them. Now, with that, you put in your mind what has happened in history that in 
I want to get the year right here. In 164 B.C., the forces of Israel, led by Judas Maccabeus, went against Edom and captured and destroyed them. And so that's chronicled in history. You can read the book of the Maccabeans uh, and you can see that in detail. That in 164 they went against the land of Edom and, and actually destroyed it. And then later in 126 BC, led by John Hyrcanus, they did it again. Israel went against Edom and destroyed them again 50 years later. And it is 50 years, right? Um, 164 and 126, so four, 40 years later, they went against them again. And so that's chronicled in history. We know that. Um, the historians of the age wrote about that. So my question then is, okay, was Ezekiel talking about that desolation that happened in the first and second century or the second century BC. Is that what he's talking about? Could be, may not be. You have to think through this and struggle with it a little bit. So it, if it is, why is it given in the midst of the millennial kingdom? and not given before the millennial kingdom like all the others are given? It's a question. It's a good question. It's one that we have to answer. And if chapter 34 is the beginning of the millennial range, knowing that Ezekiel wrote almost exclusive, exclusively chronological, you can read through the book and he gives the year and the month and the day over and over and over again, and it's chronological through the, the, up to the destruction of Jerusalem. Then he jumps to the Millennial Kingdom because there's nothing more to talk about for Israel. They're in captivity and they've been destroyed. Okay, so if he does write chronologically, why is chapter 35 after the Millennial Reign begins? So again, those are good questions that you should struggle with if you have this, the bent that I do, that this is all talking about the Millennial Kingdom. So for me, the key is in verse 15 of chapter 35. We'll read it again. It is 15, isn't it? Hold on a second. It's 14. Thus says the Lord God, as all the earth rejoices, I'll make you a desolation. Okay? So the rest of the world is rejoicing, but Edom is made a desolation. So Edom is singled out here. The whole world rejoices except for the nation of Edom. So when is it that the whole world has ever rejoiced at one time? Never, Never right? Well, not that I know of. 
not that the scripture details for us, has the whole world rejoiced. Now in the millennial kingdom, while there are some people who will be against God, yet they will honor him, and they'll be controlled and ruled by people who love God, you could speak of the whole world rejoicing that Jesus Christ is on his throne. Because certainly the rulers of all those nations will be rejoicing at that time. Because their Lord and their God, their Savior, will be on the throne in Jerusalem and all the nations will parade before him and give him honor. Even if they don't want to, the people who don't believe in him as the Lord of the earth will still give him honor just as people today who don't necessarily like the president, don't like their king, don't like their rulers, but when you're in their presence, you give them honor. The same thing will be true during the millennial reign, that even people who oppose Jesus Christ will give him honor. And the whole world will be controlled by true believers who have been in sanctified bodies and will be ruling the nations. That's what Revelation details for us, that the whole world will be rejoicing. So for me, this is significant. Because while the whole world rejoices, Edom does not. Edom is laid desolate. So what I believe this is speaking of is that during the millennial reign, Edom is the only place on the planet that is absolutely desolate. That God has judged them in such a way that during the millennial reign, adjacent to Jerusalem and the, and the nation of Israel and the land given to the Israelites, just adjacent to that is Edom. And that land will be desolate and nobody will pass through it the fires will burn for the whole thousand years. The, the, the dead bodies will rot and decay. And that land will be left judged by God for a thousand years. Yeah. Look at Isaiah 65, verse 20. This is part of that. Isaiah 65, 20. It says, No more shall there be in it an infant who lives but a few days. So what a beautiful passage that is. Yeah. No, no, no small child will die. And then it says, Or an old man who does not fill out his days. For the young man shall die. He will be considered old at 100 years, right? Yeah. Amen to that, right? <laughs> Right. Christ is going to be judging instantly, and there will be curses on individuals during this reign of Christ. Right. As the as the judgment that is exactly we yep. live in forbearance and grace right now, but then sin is going to be judged. Well, rule with an iron rod, exactly. right? He rule with an iron rod, meaning that if there is sin, it will be judged right. immediately. There will be, and, and we, we have this wrong picture of the millennial kingdom. It is a time of great rejoicing 
all across the whole world. And it is a time of peace. And it is a time of prosperity. And when Christ reigns and rules over the whole world, but the whole world doesn't give him homage in their heart. They do on the surface because they have to. But in their heart, they're still unbelievers. There's still people who die. There's still people who are born. There are people who die of old age and go to glory with God. I mean, life goes on during the millennial reign. It doesn't end and we just, you know, eat gumdrops and live happily ever after. That, that is nowhere in Scripture. That is not what is pictured by any means. Uh, you know, who knows? I mean, we don't. Who knows what advances, as we call them, you know, who knows what the world will look like? We have no idea because we're not given any of those details. We're just told who reigns and who rules and who's given honor. And some things like what you just read in Isaiah, that there are still people who sin. There are still people who don't believe in God. There are people who live long, but they still die. So... Right. But we are still living, regardless of what some of the most popular preachers and teachers teach today, we will be living under the restraint of the law of God administered by Christ. Yeah, oh, absolutely. The law of God will at that time be established. You know, he, he's tried to use men to do it for all these years, and it's never worked, but the ultimate Israelite will come and rule. And reign, and, and the law of God will be implemented. And, and uh, by the way, you'll see it in Ezekiel. There's still sacrifices given. There's still burnt offerings given. There's still sin sacrifices given during the millennial reign. Why would that be? Well, we'll talk about it when we get there. But it's clear that in the instruction to the Levites that they are to have morning and afternoon sacrifices. Yom Kippur still exists. All the Jewish festivals still exist. Yeah, it, because the Lord will be leading it. Right. No, to what it will be then. Right, and, re and realize the glory of God will be in the temple in Jerusalem. It'll be God's house for a thousand years. And at the end of all that, Satan's loosed and the people who don't believe in God come against him again. Oh, absolutely. Right. Who knows where his demons are? Probably bound with him. Um, but Satan is in the abyss for a thousand years, which is why you can have peace on the whole earth. Which is us. <laughs> That's right. Blame it on Satan, but don't try that before the Lord. Well, people who are born, and this, this really gets some people, people who are born during the millennial reign still have a sin nature. They still have to place faith in Jesus Christ. Nowhere does the scripture speak that that's not true. So we just don't think rightly. Don't get your theology from Fred Sanford. <laughs> Okay. Only, enough, only a few people are old enough to remember the right? 
Yeah, I remember it. Okay, so to put it, to put it together, the millennial reign, I believe, begins in chapter 34. Mount Seir, Edom, is judged for a thousand years and remains desolate for that entire millennial reign. That's why chapter 35 is where it is. And it says four times in that chapter, that short little chapter. That, that they may know that I am the Lord. The very next 36. Right. It says, hear the word of the Lord. Right. And um, don't know exactly when the desolation happens. It may be during the very end when the Antichrist is consuming the whole world, and he does. He even goes against Babylon. I mean, you can, if we ever get to Daniel, you'll see that in Daniel, that it's detailed that, um, that the Antichrist goes against Babylon itself, which is the seat of his, of his kingdom. So he, there, he spares no mercy. For anybody. So it may be during that time. Or it may be afterwards and the Israelites themselves go into the land and kill them. I don't know. Because we're not given that. But I know this. That it will be desolate for a thousand years. Thanks for your time.